Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. And about that influence I just mentioned, that is our topic because that is the core competency of successful product managers. It is also something that most product managers want more of, influence, and you need it to get others to support your ideas and plans for improving products and making great new products. To make that happen, you need to understand and apply the six principles of influence. The person you'd want to talk with is Dr. Matt Barney. He has over 25 years of experience leading the science and technology of leader development in senior global roles at multinationals such as Infosys, AT&T, Lucent Technologies, and Motorola. He is also the only PhD industrial organizational psychologist to earn the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer Certification, demonstrating his expertise in influence and persuasion. You'll hear a little bit more about that in the discussion. And that is also why he is having this discussion with us, because of those credentials and his experience, so that you can improve your influence and have more impact on your organization. And remember, if you hear something you want to go back to or you want an easy summary to share with others, we take those notes for you. You'll find all the best insights from the discussion simply by going to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 249. Now, let's talk to Dr. Barney. Dr. Matt Barney, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thanks for having me. Delighted that we get to talk about this topic that you are an expert in. Uh, You have a lot of areas that you have really good capabilities in. But as a PhD IO psychologist, um, uh, industrial organizational psychology degree, you have also spent some time learning about this topic of influence and how do we influence and persuade others. And this, this speaks to the heart of so many product managers listening, because we know we have all this responsibility and we have no actual authority, right? There's this term that has been coined for product managers that we're the mini CEO, and we, it's been updated a bit because we all recognize that would be great if it was true, but we have no actual authority like a CEO does. So this will help us enormously. How did you come to this area of work, this topic of influence? You know, I started out um, being interested and feeling like a bit of a patsy as a kid or a youngster. And in undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I learned about the principles of persuasion from one of Professor Robert Cialdini's PhD students. Hmm. So I had learned about him and admired his work long before I started working with him, before I was an IO psychologist, um, studying teams and leadership. And so because so many parts of human relationships and leading and following has something to do with influence. I became very passionate about this. Years later, I ended up incorporating it into a lot of the work that I'd done uh, because it's not unique to product managers. Mm -hmm. Many people feel the same way where they'd like to influence maybe their government or their spouse or their kids. Um, So although I'm a workplace focused psychologist and most of my use of persuasion when I teach it um, is focused there. These are universals and they're cross-cultural universals. Uh, Professor Robert Cialdini is the most cited living social psychologist. He's done not only done the seminal studies, but he synthesized his colleagues for the last 70 years 
in terms of practically how does a product manager or just a person ethically influence. So that's, it's central to what it means to be human Mm -hmm. and it's key to the workplace, whether it's customers or patients, it's, uh, that's why I was super passionate about it from the my earliest days. Yeah, and I like the connection of that to your leadership work because, you know, Dr. Chaldini's work shows up many places, has been around for, I guess, what is his seminal book was late 90s, maybe? Is that right? That's right, but he's been doing this since before I was born. Okay. Yeah, okay, so he- <laughs> good history there for sure. Um, <laughs> and I see it showing up in marketing circles at times, right? How, how do we persuade yes. people? But I, I like the connections you've made there to leadership. And I see product managers as people that should be moving into leadership. We have really unique, integrated perspectives of the organization. And this notion of leadership, I think, is best approached from the angle of influence, right? That not exerting any kind of actual sense of power, but we do much better as leaders when we're really influencing people. That's so true. And I think that's the key distinction I'd like product managers to really appreciate. True leadership is not being the boss. Right. It's convincing people to follow you because your your argument, your your message is so compelling. Mm-hmm. And the best formal leaders who are bosses with power don't use that power as much as they use influence. So yeah. the best leaders, I mean, people didn't follow Gandhi on the salt march to liberate India because he had a gun to their head. He was Mr. Nonviolence. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody nobody feels that Oprah is a terrific leader because she was, you know, forcing people against their will to follow her advice or Elon Musk product managers are in the same category, right. The best ones figure out how to convince their audience. Yeah. Yeah. That's very important. And we need that ability to convince persuade. So let's talk through the, the principles here, the core of how do we actually influence and I'll let you start where you want and we'll just go with the discussion. Sure. Well, professor Cialdini's approach is deceptively simple and and the, the beginning is how do we cultivate relationships? Influence is, a, is an interpersonal process. And there are three principles that start and, and deepen our relationships. One is called reciprocity. Mm-hmm. And that's this idea that everybody feels obligated to give back to other people who have given to them first. Another one is around liking. We prefer to say yes to people that no one like us and that we like them back. Mm-hmm. And his newest principle that he just came out with a new book on is called unity. And this is, we feel, when we feel like we're part of somebody else or part of the team or part of the company, part of our family, really, we're much more likely to say yes to people that are part of us, that are kin, essentially. So cultivating relationships are are a group of principles that are key when we just complete strangers. So new product manager doesn't know anybody. There's a lot of work there in terms of beginning relationships and deepening them. When you've got the relationship, two other principles become really relevant. Um, one is called the principle of consensus. This is the idea that when we're not sure what we should be doing, we look around at what other people are doing that are just like us. So if a product manager has a recommendation that's very, very similar to other companies uh, that are similar to the company that the product manager is in, they're doing their audience a favor by pointing out how lots of other examples are doing the same thing that this product manager is recommending. And consensus is especially relevant when there's uncertainty and when it's a fashion or a preference type of thing like style. The other principle around reducing uncertainty 
is definitely one that product managers should focus on most of the time. It's called the principle of authority. It's the idea not about being the boss, but authority in the sense of we all go to the doctor or the dentist or the electrician for their expertise. Mm-hmm. So we want to follow the guidance of credible experts. Mm-hmm. But the key to that is credibility. Can we trust them? And how do we help people trust that those experts truly are uh, informative, helping us make a better decision or help our audience make a better decision? So those are the next two principles. Um, I started out with cultivating relationships. Mm-hmm. These last two, social proof and authority, are around reducing uncertainty. And the last two are about motivating action. So maybe the product manager's got the relationship, he's convinced the audience, but they're still not saying, they're not moving forward. Right. One of the principles is called consistency. And this is the idea that we all feel obligated to remain consistent with our prior choices, our prior stands. And so a product manager pointing out how the recommendation he or she is making is aligned with the values of the audience or promises the audience has already made is an example of using that that principle effectively. And then the last principle is the most primitive. Even single-celled organisms respond to scarcity. So scarcity is the idea that we all want to avoid losing things much more than we want to gain them. And so when the product manager is doing a huge favor to the audience by pointing out what they are going to lose if they ignore the product manager's recommendations or if they delay the decision about the product manager's um, guidance. Um, And so all of the principles I just described to you are best done proactively. So they're, they're not complicated, as you can see, but there's a lot of complexity around being a product manager, the right. company they're in, the industry they're in, the moving parts of the politics, uh, both inside and outside the organization. What's brutally difficult about influence for anybody, not just product managers, is using these things proactively and so that you're ready in the moment when they're most appropriate doing them in a totally ethical way. And that's where it requires some practice of these things Uh, because they seem superficially simple, but they, the devil's in the proverbial details. And a lot of that's about real world application. Yeah. If we go back to your first one about the collection for cultivating relationships, when you need to have someone else's buy-in for, to help you on, on a decision to get support, to influence others, Um, it's really challenging to cultivate that relationship at the time of that need. That's right. So you want to be the first mover. You want to be the first to proactively say, how can I help this person um, in some way that they would appreciate? Mm -hmm. You know, the more personalized, the more meaningful to your audience, the more they don't expect it, the better. But that takes some effort on your part, some homework that you got to go do. Now, in today's social media environment, there's lots of ways product managers can do this. Even if they don't know this this person at all, I've never met them. They can ask people that might know them. They can look on their Twitter feed. They can look on if this person's got a blog post. Anything like that could be a source for any of these principles. But without that homework, you're not going to be as effective because all of them ethically to use them properly are just about raising them to the surface. It's not about Mm -hmm. fictionalizing the the facts. It's just about making people aware of them because they're often buried in the situation. Hey, Dad, I was just thinking about your book. What's its title? Turning Ideas into Market-Winning Products. 
Is that about alchemy? <laughs> okay, that's an interesting question. It's kind of, I guess. It's actually about how we find insights. We uncover problems, come across ideas, these unmet needs that customers have that we can then turn into some product or service that creates new value for them in a way that really is different than others. That's market-winning products. So why did you recently make a second edition? Well, the first one was a few years ago, and recently AIPMM, that's the Association of International Product Marketers and Managers, contacted me about providing that original book to some of the people that are earning uh, their certification. And I said, that'd be great. Be glad to help out with that. And that was a good opportunity to update the book and bring in some new information. Okay. So where can people get your book? Well, it's on Amazon, of course. But even more importantly, they can find many of the key concepts for free in my online course. If you're selling the book, why are you giving away a free course? Because I really do want to help as many product managers as I can have this notion of what it takes to make market-winning products, to take ideas and turn them into products that customers love. Okay, I get it. Where can product managers get the free course? That's easy. You can just go to the everydayinnovator.com slash book and sign up for the free mini course. Easy to do, and you'll get these little lessons that just come into your email box. Are you sure it's not about alchemy? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to walk back through these and just get some specifics that we can tie into. On that issue of reciprocity, uh, a lot of this for us as product managers is building those relationships so that they're available in the future. You know, when we do yes. need just feedback, like, are we thinking the right way here? What's your experience been like? You're right. Or we need your support too. Can you help, you know, carry this message on to, you know, people that you may know? The advice that listeners have heard me give many times for product managers is to simply have lunch with people in the organization that you don't know, right? We, we tend to work really cross-functionally. So we already know we're going to need to work with people in sales and people in marketing, people in manufacturing, people in design, you know, the functions of the organization. And a great way to build your network is to go ask people what they do. My experience has been people usually like talking about what their work is and what they like about it, don't like about it, you know, those sort of things. And just inviting someone to coffee or lunch to say, hey, can you tell me what you do is a great way to start that. Uh, love your thoughts on that and, how, and what you might do with that. I, I agree. I think that can be a great way. I would say before that lunch or dinner or breakfast, you'd also be doing yourself and the other person a favor of doing some homework about, mm-hmm. you know, things that you can sincerely, honestly praise about them. Like maybe they've won an award or maybe they've um, accomplished something or maybe um, they have something in common with you that um, that would be a very good way to break the ice with them. Mm-hmm. When we have things in common with them, when Praise is unique because praise can be a gift. It can start reciprocity. It also causes people to like us, you know, as long as it's sincere and and genuine. So finding honest excuses to praise people, um, even before you've met them, is is fantastic. Now, you can't always do that. And so if you're in the moment having that lunch, can you listen very actively for something that they've said or something that excites you about their work, something that you think is praiseworthy or places where they're struggling that you could be of help. Right. The key is from the other person's point of view. Can you listen carefully enough, find places you could absolutely proactively do something they would appreciate, or at least just connect and say uh, what we have in common. Right. And the more common and the more deep, the more united you are. Do you have friends in common? Do you have a similar history or, or hobbies in common? Mm-hmm. 
there are many examples where this has huge impact on tiny things like this can make a massive difference. And if you like, I can give you some examples. Yeah, please do. You know, one is from a friend of mine who's also works closely with Professor Cialdini, Professor Greg Neider, um, had gotten a call from a CEO or the SVP of a large multinational fortune 50 that was trying to reduce the time to do mergers and acquisitions. Hmm. They were, they were spending hundreds of millions per year. Each deal was many millions of dollars, but it was taking them six months or more. And so professor Neider um, asked, you know, do you have any records of this or can I, can I sit in some, well, it turned out they had, they had video recordings of all these. And it turned out the beginnings of them, the CEO was often late, that the acquiring company was late and just said, oh, time is money. Let's get down to business. There was none of these pleasantries mm. of the sort I'm recommending for product managers before the lunch or during the lunch. Professor Neidert got them to switch that so that they started out with just a few things they had in common. And it turned out the CEO was really into sailing. And so a lot of these acquiring companies were also into sailing. It was on the East Coast, in New York, where sailing was a big thing. And... Um, and it, got, it went so well that the lawyers ended up being the ones saying, oh, let's get down to business. You guys are talking about chit-chatty things too long. But it took what usually took six to nine months. It took it down to five months. And each deal was reduced. It was less expensive by millions of dollars, five plus wow. million dollars per deal, just from humanizing up front. Mm -hmm. So all I'm saying on that lunch is can you ahead of time find out where your common connections are during the lunch? Mm -hmm. Can you humanize? The more you do that, the more likely you're going to be influential later. I would characterize that activity, and I don't know if it exactly contributed to trust and rapport, but that's the first things I would think of, right? The taking the time to just get to know each other and yeah. find out what's in common, that you were establishing some level of trust and definitely developing rapport with each other. That's right. Because we we feel obligated to give back to people if they've said or done nice things for us. We want to help mm -hmm. them out too and repay them. This is one of these cross-cultural universals. Um, we like we like to work with people we like and that like us back. Right. Mm -hmm. And and we are doing that when it, we've got something in common with them. Um, these are not the, the superficial kinds of things in common, although those can help. These are deep kinds of things, shared values, shared interests, shared right. goals, those sorts of things. Yeah. Something practical, many of us meet with our product management teams virtually. Some are in person, but many are virtually. And there's a program I have called the Rapid Product Master Experience, RPM Experience, where I help product managers kind of skill up, level up their skills, and work better with each other. And in those meetings, we always spend the first few minutes just doing a check-in with each other, right? So we're meeting virtually, and the check-in questions I, I share are generally unwork-related. So there are questions that might be, what's something that you like about yourself? And it's just, it's to get them to talk a little bit about things that they like, things they're interested in, and find some commonalities among everyone there. Good practice for virtual teams? Very much so. Okay. The more you can help those teams highlight what they do have in common, where they could co mm -hmm. collaborate, cooperate, what they have uh, in common, how they're a unit, a, a, a kinship, they're and make it, even though it's virtual, it feels a bit more local when you can do that and humanize. It is really much better done in parts of Asia to humanize this way before you mm -hmm. get down to business than maybe some of the Western European or North American styles of working. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's a terrific approach. Good. Yeah, the, the topic of unity, I, I know there's a collection of economists that 
have looked at this of the number of groups that we belong to as individuals. And many decades ago, it was, you know, 1940s, 50s, maybe even before that, I think the number was most people were involved in a minimum of six groups, right, which might be the, your church, the group you went bowling with, right, the, the group you played card games with, the group you met at the tavern uh, after work, and that that number of groups that we're connected to has decreased considerably today. But with that, they also found that the more groups that you're part of, the higher your trust is, simply because people recognize that there's some associated trust with being part of a group, and that, that brings you some credibility all by itself. So I, I don't know that research work well, but I thought it was really interesting about how your participation in groups and being part of something influences trust and in how people like you. Very much so. It goes way back to families, you know, the family unit and, and, and small groups, you know, centuries before recorded history, our species survived based on these small groups of mm-hmm. being a unit and acting and working together closely. Um, and the more close, the more frequently these teams touch each other, the better. And these can even have life and death implications. So, for example, mm-hmm. in World War II, it was, you know, fam- infamously... Jews were being annihilated by the Nazis, but in Japan and in, in China, there was there were enclaves of Jewish people who were called by the Japanese um, uh, in power saying, why is it our allies hate you so much? And one of the Jewish rabbis that they asked um, quite savagely said, because we're Asian like you. And so the Japanese protected these Jewish, a very small group of Jewish people. It would have been easy for them to just send off to Auschwitz or Buchenwald, but they didn't because of the shared unity. We're Asian like you, and the Aryans hate the Asians like us. Mm-hmm. That was a very powerful response to create that unity with your country culture. Very much. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, uh, let's talk about consensus building some. As product managers, this sometimes cuts both ways for us, and it depends who we're, I think, maybe talking to, because we might find benchmarks or examples of you know something that is working in the marketplace and point to that and say, you know, that's worked, and here's how we think we can take that, maybe even make it better. And if some people look at that and go, well, you know, that's just what the competitor's doing. We, we don't want to be like them. We want to go our, our own path. So right. sometimes it helps us, and sometimes it, it doesn't, and it really does depend who you're talking to. And sure. in general, product managers, we're not wired to to want to make me two sort of products, you know, copy products. Yep. But at the same time, we do pay attention to, hey, did the competitors do something that our customers appreciate? And we need to sure. investigate that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the key, the key to this one is what you just said. Different people are different. Who they see as similar might be different. Well, you mm. can't know that and be prepared for it unless you've done the homework that I was recommending right. a moment ago. So by doing the homework... You know, you can basically highlight it's not just what the competitors might be similar to what your audience, your boss might care about. You know, think Google and Facebook and, you know, Tesla are like his role model and whatever they're doing for product management is what we're going to do, too. Whereas maybe the head of strategy thinks, no, some other company that's not even in our industry is better at creating differentiation. Uh So the message about what you make salient about what lots of other companies or other products are doing depends on who you're talking to and what you're you're trying to influence. So the more of those people, the more similar to the people that they think they want to be like, mm-hmm. and the more uncertainty, the more powerful this is. So this is especially relevant when your boss, when the company, you know, during the 2008 Great Recession, tons of uncertainty. Nobody was sure globally 
how to get out of that pickle. Right. And, you know, some of the products were, that were more successful were losing less money than other products at that time. So when people are really unsure about, you know, maybe massive disruption or government regulations or disruptive tech, this is when the social proof is really relevant, but you can't use it properly without knowing who the other party, who the other group thinks is similar to themselves. That's really good advice. So it's kind of who they associate their unity with, right? The group that they would like to be a part of. Right. And I can imagine if I'm talking, if I need to influence someone who is a follower and a fan of Elon Musk, and even if I said something like, well, you know, Elon would never do that, that that would catch their attention and and open a door for us to have a more meaningful conversation. Because now I've associated with someone that they trust, and at least I got their interest by saying that. And he's actually an authority on multiple topics. So that brings us to another principle. But if we just stay with social proof for a moment, the more similar, this person you talk to is probably not like Elon Musk. He's quite unusual. Uh So for this one, you might, you might include Elon, but you might include other folks that are other, you know, if you're talking to a product manager community and trying to influence the community, it's other product managers Uh that would be similar. To the audience. Yeah. So often for us, it's, you know, we're, we're trying to get engineering on board with the way that we're thinking with, we've seen a customer need and we really need their help to support getting a solution for that. Or we're just trying to influence the executive team to, you know, pay attention to a need that we've uncovered that we think we can solve that might not be currently, you know, on the path right now on the roadmap somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the engineers, my experience working with engineers throughout my career at Motorola and mm-hmm. Infosys, they often have different focal points like quality right. than maybe finance does, which might be more on cost or marketing on customer sat. And those aren't unrelated topics, but the things you highlight might be a little different for mm-hmm. those audiences. Yeah, that's a good point. Again, it comes to understanding what kind of the factors are that are important to your audience, what drives them, making the information relevant for them and the way they think about it. That's right. Okay. So that covers a little bit on uh, the connection to authority that you talked about that we, we want to tie into credible experts and make use of that. What about in the process ourselves trying to become more, you know, our influence increases as our authority, our perceived authority, in this sense, sure. our credibility increases. Sure. Some of that just comes through experience, right? But th- th- thoughts on that? How do we improve our credibility? Well, let's go with your experience example. When we've had good experience and somebody praises our product roadmap, a very good response to that praise is, you're welcome, and you know, would you mind get writing a testimonial for me? Hmm. Um, testimonials are terrific forms of social proof, in this case, about your expertise, or awards that you might get, or credentials, additional credentials bolstering um, other people knowing that third parties are seeing you as someone with this domain expertise, most individual contributors in most roles, physicians, lawyers, engineers, product managers, face the same things around getting other convincing their audience to receive their message and use their expertise. And doctors have more, more ease with this because we have a long cultural history and cues, you know, the stethoscope and people listen to physicians more than some of us that aren't physicians. But there's a big but to this. Even if you're an expert, if, if I were to tell you that I had a financial expert who is ex-SEC. He was so financially successful that he created a billion-dollar multinational hedge fund. You might think he has financial expertise, and you'd be right. But the minute I tell you it's Bernie Madoff, do you want to trust him with your life savings? 
Right. There's another dimension there to the story. Right. Yeah. So, so the key is not just being an expert and having these testimonials or recognitions or credentials, but also being so comfortable that your product management recommendations are good, that you're the first to proactively admit something that's weak about your proposal. Maybe this isn't the cheapest path forward for us, but it's going to massively differentiate us in the marketplace. So when we're comfortable enough to be the first to admit a limitation to our proposal, we can turn that lemon into lemonade. Uh People then can trust us, even if they barely know us, um, because they don't expect it. And of course, if you don't, if you're not the first to admit the weakness, they may come up with it or your competitors or detractors may, may bring it up. And then you've lost that chance to make Uh that lemonade. So it means doing our homework, doing such a good job as a product manager that we we're comfortable. We don't mind admitting that there's some drawback before they're even thinking of it. I really appreciate that you mentioned that one specifically, you know, the, the weaknesses in our proposal. I've read lots of business cases and some business cases are, they're written almost like a, a sales proposition that, you know, th- this yeah. is something that I'm trying to convince you that we need to do as opposed right. to there's always shortcomings in any kind of, we just That's don't right. have all the information yet. And the proposals that balance that and say, you know, here's what we know that we feel good about. Here's the the things that we don't know. And here's the risks that may happen. I think are much more credible. Completely. And and you mentioned sales. I think too often salespeople don't understand these principles too well. Mm. The most award-winning salesperson in the Guinness Book of World Records is a guy named Joe Girard. Hmm. He never did that stuff. He when you when you ask him how is it that he he sold more, he never sold fleet, but he had he sold dozens of cars a day. He still has the world record for this. And he, had, he was so successful, he had a secretary take appointments from people to come buy a car from him because he didn't have any space for more. And it was because he didn't make people feel he was smarmy or mm. cheating them. He said, you know, I wanted people to get the kind of treatment that I would get. Right. And he did such an amazing job of this. He was, I mean, how many of us trust our car salespeople? This is why there's CarMax, right? It's a company who recognizes yeah. we want a more honest experience, right? Right, yeah. right. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a weakness in the marketplace. Okay, this is all very good. We touched on many of the concepts of the framework there for how we can have more influence, more persuasion, and those are good things for us to look into. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes. I always ask for one. Can you tell us what you brought and why you chose that one? I'm fond of a quote by maybe the most successful hedge fund manager ever, Ray Dalio, and his quote is, pain plus reflection equals progress. Hmm. I like it because whether it's becoming a better product manager or speaking a foreign language or becoming a better leader, it requires us to deliberately practice and then reflect on what went well and what didn't go so well. It's kind of like going to the gym. It's not always fun to work out, but it's good for us. And um, whether it's these principles or something else we want to develop, it's important to you and me to do that in a deliberate way and then be honest about what didn't go so well. So we can let those mistakes and pain points be our teachers. And my current work, you know, basically makes artificial intelligence that makes that easier than you could do without it. Hmm. That's interesting. That's a whole nother story by itself, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) But I appreciate the quote. And I think we need times of reflection so that we can make progress because as product managers, much of our work is about innovation, doing something new and that really does involve learning at constantly as we're going and reflecting on what we're learning. 
and there's pain involved. So that, that's a really great quote for product managers. Pain, pain plus reflection equals progress. So appreciate you sharing that. How can people find out about your work, Matt, what you do there to help leaders and help organizations? How can we get in contact with you? Whatever you want to share. My website is leaderamp.com. Email is matt at leaderamp.com. Okay. We make software that makes learning these kinds of principles more effective, more embedded into your daily life with new kinds of artificial intelligence. Okay. And we work closely with Professor Cialdini to do that. Excellent. And so it sounds like it's not just you know learning the concepts, but you're making software to apply this, make it integrated into your daily routine. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. That's very interesting. We'll have to talk more about that because I'm intrigued by that. I appreciate the information. I will put that link in the show notes. Again, that was leaderamp.com. Thanks for giving us insights about how we can have more influence in the work that we do. Really important for us as product managers. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to what? What we just talked about, more influence and also confidence so that you can create those products that customers love. You'll find the written notes of the discussion with Dr. Barney at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 249. Go check it out. It's a great way to share these insights with others. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.